this isn't the first time I've written about a family annihilator, and it likely won't be the last, but this case is different. There were warning signs. There were red flags. Sadly, there was no one to see them. No one connected enough to the family to recognize the danger. One of the things that sets this case apart from others where the family is destroyed is that the perpetrator is a woman. In most family annihilator cases, more than 90% of them, the killer is a man. Think about John List, Chris Watts, Scott Peterson, the professional wrestler Chris Benoit, men who murdered their wives and children, destroying the entire family. Watts, List, and Peterson moved on with their lives, but were eventually arrested and tried. Benoit took his own life after murdering his wife and son. This week's case is similar to that of Benoit. The perpetrator, Lauren Stewart, killed her husband and two adult children over the course of a very long, very disturbing day. The first victim, her youngest daughter, Bethany, was murdered while sleeping in her bed at the family home. Before we can talk about the murders, we have to meet the family, set the scene, understand the Stewart family. So come with me to Valentine's Day 2018, when Lauren Stewart, a mother, model, and aspiring actress, did the unthinkable. Kiko Harbor is an interesting little waterfront town located about 25 miles north of Detroit. Kigo is perched just north of the more expensive and exclusive suburbs of Orchard Lake and Bloomfield Hills, and just west of another small waterfront community, Sylvan Lake. Kigo, which means big fish in Ojibwa, has a population of just under 3,000 people, and they live in an area of 0.54 square miles. While violent crime is more common a couple of miles east in the city of Pontiac, Murders in Kiko Harbor are very, very rare. This is a small city, and this? This is a large and horrific crime. At the start of 2018, Lauren Stewart and her husband Daniel had been married almost 30 years. Their two children, Stephen and Bethany, were both college-educated. Stephen worked with computers, and Bethany, a recent graduate of Oakland Community College, was interested in graphic design. The education of the children created quite a bit of tension in the Stewart family. The Stewarts were practicing Jehovah's Witness. Sending a child off to college was not looked on favorably by those in their congregation. As Stephen and Bethany grew up, both children were bright, intelligent, and intellectually curious. They wanted to go to college. They wanted to further their education. It was the decision of Lauren and Daniel, the choice to send their son to college, that led to a final break from the church. As practicing Jehovah's Witness, their faith was the center of their life. It was a source of religious fulfillment, social outlet, and provided a tangible connection to the extended family. I have read that because of the structure of their faith, the Stewart family was shunned. The term the church uses is disfellowship where the church community, including family such as parents, siblings, or cousins, sever ties with those no longer in the good graces of the church. The church teaches that it is important to avoid the disfellowshipped individual to keep the congregation free from sin. And listeners, 
be aware that I am simplifying this explanation. The idea of shunning and disfellowship is complex, and it is layered, and it could be the focus of its own podcast. Suffice to say that around 2012, about six years prior to the murders, the Stewart family fell out of favor with their church, likely because of the decision to send one or both of their children away to college. Being out of favor with the church meant that their extended family and many of their friends no longer felt comfortable associating with the Stuarts. This included breaking off contact with Lauren's many siblings, her father, and much of her husband's family who were also Jehovah's Witness. This break created a stressful situation for the Stuarts, which was likely felt the most by Lauren. As a stay-at-home mother and part-time model, she was the most isolated. Unlike her husband and children, she wasn't heading out to work or school to experience interaction with people outside of their faith. When Lauren did work, completing modeling assignments or improving her portfolio, the feedback from photographers, other models, and agents was positive. She was easygoing, professional, and pleasant. Everything you hope for in a contract employee. Photos of Lauren show a trim, smiling woman with light brown hair. She's strikingly pretty and looks younger than her 45 years. While Lauren kept the family home looking nice and made sure dinner was on the table each night, her husband, Daniel, worked for the University of Michigan as a, quote, data solutions architect. The Stewarts purchased the vintage home in Kiko Harbor in 2012, and Lauren was excited about remodeling the house and making it their own. They were a good-looking young family. Daniel was still dark-haired and handsome in his 40s and drove a yellow Camaro. They were still a good-looking family. Even in their 40s, Daniel was still dark-haired and handsome and drove a yellow Camaro. From the outside, the Stewarts were the image of the ideal family, attractive parents, two healthy, good-looking children, and a beloved family dog. If you saw them, perhaps waving at you as you drove past, or calling a hello from across the yard as you raked leaves. They looked like the perfect family, a healthy, loving foursome. But behind closed doors, it was a very different scene. One of isolation, depression, loneliness, and fear. When police entered the Stewart home on Friday, February 16, 2018, They found it full of electronics, computers, gaming systems, big screen televisions, phones, tablets. In fact, the basement of the home was finished with a theater-like television viewing area, as well as computer workstations. Some of us might consider this the ideal setup, but it also spoke to how isolated the family was, with few visitors, no holiday celebrations, just the four of them, alone, together. While the Stuarts, including Daniel, put on a brave face for the world, things at home were not always rosy. Some of their friends reported that Daniel was known to struggle with depression, and Lauren had her own mental health issues. She told friends that her issues started when she was 13 and her mother died, leaving her and her siblings in the care of their father. Lauren would confide in friends and acquaintances that her father had molested her after the death of her mother assaults that she struggled to deal with over the years. And listeners, I want to be clear that Lauren's father denies these accusations, 
and he offered to take a polygraph to clear his name. He firmly denies ever having any inappropriate contact with Lauren. As 2017 ended, Lauren Stewart was in crisis. Her emotional health could best be described as fragile. Lauren became obsessed with religion and using religion to protect her husband and children. Recalling the faith that she grew up in, Jehovah's Witness believe that we are in the end days. It is vital for people to worship properly so they may enter the kingdom of heaven. All other religions are false. Only those who are practicing Jehovah's Witness in good standing with the church will arrive in heaven. Again, I am simplifying their message for the sake of brevity and clarity. And if you are interested in learning more about Jehovah's Witness, there are several options available online for you to explore. And listeners, here is where I struggle. What happens next? Perhaps it could have been prevented. Perhaps someone could have intervened and led Lauren in a different direction. What if? What if? I've seen many arguments about the reason for the events of February 15th, that Lauren and her family were shunned by the church, that Lauren was a victim of abuse when she was a teenager, that Lauren had an untreated mental illness, or perhaps it was all of these things. She was abused, her family was shunned, she was ill. We will likely never know the true reason for the horrific events that unfolded in the tastefully decorated home on Cass Lake Road. What we do know is what happened next. The Stewart home is a compact bungalow in a quiet neighborhood of similarly modest homes. The house had a gravel driveway leading to a rarely used one-car garage in the back. While Stephen and Bethany had both lived there, at some point Stephen, who was in his mid-twenties, moved out of the family home, leaving only his parents and younger sister residing in the house. When police arrived at the Stewart home the morning of February 16, 2018, they were prompted to visit by Lauren's cousin, Andrea. Andrea had received a troubling text from Lauren the evening of February 15th a text that read in part that she, Lauren, was selfish, and that she had failed God. Andrea texted Lauren, begging her not to do anything foolish, asking her to call, asking Lauren if she was all right, but Lauren did not respond to any of Andrea's messages. Arriving on the scene Thursday morning, police note three vehicles parked in the driveway. Closest to the garage is a yellow Chevy Camaro, Dan's vehicle. Behind it is a black Jeep, usually driven by Lauren, and nearest to the street is a black Mazda, Stephen's car. Arriving at the house is a Kego Harbor Police Department patrol officer accompanied by a detective. Remember, Kego Harbor is a very small community, and they have a very small police force. While the officer knocks on the front door, the detective walks along the side of the house to the backyard, looking for occupants. When no one answers the door, the patrolman tries the front door and finds the house unlocked. The two men enter the home. They make their presence known, loudly announcing, Police! Anyone home? But they are met with silence. The home's interior is well lit. In lieu of expensive window treatments like shades, curtains, or blinds, the windows are covered with a frosted film, which allows in a lot of light but does not allow people to see in or out through the windows. 
When the patrol officer peers inside the bathroom on the main floor, he sees that the shower curtain is closed. He pulls the shower curtain aside and is greeted with bloodstains smearing the walls of the shower and bath, and on the floor of the shower is a dead dog. The patrolman calls out, quote, There's a dead dog in here. Get your gun out. He will later learn that the family pet was shot four times before the carcass was placed in the bathtub. Oddly, while investigators determined the dog was originally shot in the living room, there is no blood on the floor or on the edge of the tub. The bathroom had been cleaned. With their weapons drawn, they return to the living room where they see a spiral staircase leading upstairs. The officer ascends, and as his head reaches the level of the second floor, he sees a body, and beyond the body, he sees more bloodstains. These are dripping down the wall. Now the officer and detective are concerned that this could be an active shooter situation. They quickly check the second bedroom where they find the body of a young woman. She's in bed, a pillow over her face. Lifting the pillow, they see a bullet wound and the gray cast of her skin. Two dead bodies. They radio in, advising that a call that started out as a welfare check is now an active crime scene. The pair begin a sweep of the house, clearing it for their own safety. Back on the main floor, they spot a narrow doorway they missed when they entered the house. The door is closed, and they cautiously open it, peering down the stairs into the basement. At the foot of the steps is the body of a woman. She's pressed into the corner, her legs splayed out in front of her. There is blood spattering the wall above her head, and her long hair covers her face. They descend the stairs into the basement and discover a fourth body, that of a man. He's on the floor near the sofa, one hand in his pocket, the other laying atop the turned-out pocket of his jeans. His skin is gray and his body is cold. They finish their sweep of the tiny basement and radio for more assistance. Responders from Kiko Harbor are joined by the West Bloomfield Fire Department. The paramedics on the West Bloomfield squad will pronounce all four victims dead at the scene. This is Kigo Harbor's case, and they have to document their findings in the house, determine what happened there, what turned a cute suburban bungalow into a nightmare for this family. The investigation begins upstairs, where 24-year-old Bethany Stewart is in her bed, a pillow with a bullet hole through it placed over her face. When they pull back the blankets, they see no tension in her fully-dressed body. Bethany was executed in her sleep, And oddly, she isn't wearing pajamas, but is dressed in jeans, socks, and a t-shirt. In the bedroom across the hall from where Bethany's body was found lies the body of 27-year-old Stephen Stewart. He's in his former bedroom. Stephen was shot twice, once in the side of the head and again in the back of the head. Bloodstains in the room show that the first shot brought him to his knees, and the second shot took him to the floor. After he'd been shot, someone took a maroon comforter and covered the chair he'd likely been sitting in when he was first shot. When officers lift the comforter, the chair he'd been seated in is covered in blood. The chair found there was a kitchen chair, and it's likely that Lauren moved it upstairs for him to sit in so that she could ambush him. Another pillow is found in this room, also with a bullet hole in it. Investigators will discover a text from Lauren to her son asking if he's coming over at noon on the 15th as planned. She summoned her son to the home so she could execute him. It's chilling. If Stephen arrived at or around noon on the 15th, 
His father and sister had already been murdered. It's likely that his mother lured him upstairs and used the pillow and gun to attack him, shooting her oldest child twice before she used the comforter to hide the bloodstains, but chose not to cover her son's body. Returning to the basement, investigators examined 45-year-old Lauren Stewart. She has pushed herself into a corner at the foot of the stairs. Her long legs are splayed out in front of her. Lauren is barefoot, dressed in pants and a long sleeve shirt. Her brown hair hangs in front of her face. When they push her hair aside, the bullet hole between her eyes becomes visible. The hole is marked with powder burns. Lauren used a handgun, pressing the weapon against her head before pulling the trigger. When police examine Lauren's iPad, they find in her browsing history that she'd viewed videos on the most effective way to shoot yourself, comparing shooting yourself in the head versus shooting yourself in the heart. She learned that a shot to the head, with the weapon aimed between the eyes, would be the most effective, and this is the method she selected to end her life. When investigators talk to friends of the Stewart family, they learn that the gun belonged to Daniel Stewart. He kept the weapon in a safe in the first floor bedroom he shared with his wife. Lauren had trained herself to use the weapon by watching videos on handling a Glock Model 19. A search of the house also turned up three other weapons, a pump-action Remington, a Smith & Wesson handgun, and a Traditions Black Powder 50 caliber rifle. Moving farther into the basement, investigators find Daniel Stewart dressed in jeans and a white undershirt. One hand is in his pants pocket. The other is on top of the pocket, with the pocket lining slightly pulled out, as if Daniel had hurriedly raised his hand as if to ward off an attack. On the floor near his body is another pillow with a bullet hole in it, just like what was found near the bodies of his children. And like the body of his son, Stephen, Daniel's body is not covered up. When investigators talk to Dan's boss at the University of Michigan, he will tell police that at about 9.15 on the morning of the 15th, he had received a text from Lauren reading, quote, Mark, this is Lauren. Dan had an accident this morning and has died. I can't talk now. Someone will inform you later on details. At hospital. Since Dan usually worked from home, him not arriving at work that morning had not raised any red flags for coworkers. His boss, Mark, was understandably shaken by this text from Lauren, and he responded with his concern and condolences, but Lauren would not text him again. After Lauren committed the last murder, the execution of her son Stephen, about one o'clock that afternoon, she had several hours in the house by herself. It's thought she spent that time cleaning and organizing the home for investigators. When the bodies are seen by the Oakland County Medical Examiner, he will tell police that Bethany was killed first, then Dan, then Steve. Lauren's suicide took place several hours later. During that time, alone in the house with her murdered family, Lauren recorded a video for investigators and left two notes on the table. One was a suicide note. The other, folded carefully, was marked as being intended for the medical examiners. When police looked in the trash can, they came across several drafts of her suicide note. The note she wrote to the medical examiner explains the origin of some bruises on her body and states that it was from something she did and that the bruises should not be misinterpreted as being from a beating or from abuse. In addition to the suicide note and letters for the medical examiner, 
Dan's father also received a letter in the mail a few days later. It was written by Lauren and contained instructions on how to access the family bank accounts. Finally, when investigators checked Lauren's purse, they found a note with passcodes to her phone, tablet, and computer. She also directed them to her iPad, which contained a video for investigators. She wanted them to watch it. On the video, which was not made public, Lauren says that what she did has nothing to do with her husband and family, that she, Lauren, has many issues and no longer wants to burden Dan or her family. She describes Dan as, quote, a good man and says that she is broken. And during this recording, she makes no mention of religion or of her two children. When investigators review the browser history on the device, they see that Lauren watched several videos about how to use a Glock 19 and videos on the best way to shoot yourself. She spent time reading an entry on Quora titled, quote, What will bring instant death? Shooting in the heart or the head? While things seemed to happen quickly with the murders taking place over the course of a day, it became clear that Lauren had planned the murders more than a week in advance. On her tablet, they found two videos, one from February 6th and one from the 7th. And these videos explained the reason for her actions. And the videos praised her husband, reminding investigators that he was not at fault for what happened. The text message that was sent to her cousin Andrea, the one that caused her such concern, was sent just after 5 o'clock on February 15th. And it said, in part, that while Lauren tried to live a Christ-centered life, she had failed God, that she, Lauren, was ashamed of her evilness. It was likely between 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock on the night of the 15th that Lauren shot the family dog. A neighbor heard a series of loud noises and assumed that it was car doors being slammed. Not long after Lauren killed the dog and placed its remains in the bathtub, then cleaned any trace of blood from the bathroom or the bathroom floor, she picked up the gun and went downstairs where Lauren sat in a corner in the basement, a few feet away from the body of her husband. She pressed the muzzle of the gun to her forehead and pulled the trigger. And for several hours, nothing stirred in the little bungalow on Cass Lake Road. The silence of the home would be broken by the arrival of officers from the Kego Harbor Police Department in the morning. So who was Lauren Stewart? Born Lauren Couch and raised in the Jehovah's Witness faith along with her ten siblings, Lauren's mother died when she was 13. She started dating Daniel Stewart in high school, and Lauren became pregnant with Stephen when she was 18. Lauren's brother, Andre, would lose his life to suicide in 1997. At the time of the murders, Lauren's father, David, and her sister, Marcy, had not spoken to Lauren in more than five years. Her father told the police that Lauren claimed he had sexually abused her when she was a child, and that he, David, denied this. He was willing to take a polygraph to clear his name, because the abuse never happened. Lauren's sister, Marcy, told police that Lauren and Dan were both strange, and that Lauren had been treated for depression previously, using the drug Prozac to manage her symptoms. When asked about Lauren's allegations against their father for abuse, Marcy said the abuse didn't happen, that Lauren may have believed it happened, but it didn't happen. She also told law enforcement that Lauren was deemed apostasy for speaking out against the church. If, like me, you aren't familiar with the term apostasy, 
It means refusal to follow a faith or abandoning a loyalty. Her family felt that she, Lauren, had abandoned the church, and so she was isolated by her religious community, including her family, for her actions. Marcy told investigators that once she recovered from her initial shock of the news, it didn't surprise her that Lauren did this, that Lauren did such a horrific thing. Marcy also said that the suicide note reflected Lauren's religious origins. Lauren may have believed that by killing her family and then herself, it would allow the four of them to be reunited and spend eternity together in peace. Investigators also spoke with Dan's sister, Laura. Laura had known Lauren since they were teenagers. She said that Lauren struggled with emotional issues previously, and at one point, Laura had Dan and Lauren's children stay with her for a couple of weeks while Lauren pulled herself together. Laura admitted that while she and Lauren were once close, she hadn't spoken to her in several months. Laura said that when they were teens, if Lauren became particularly upset, she would sit in the corner, her back pressed to the wall as she shook. Lauren's whole body would tremble, and Lauren would be in the corner, shaking as her emotions swirled and overwhelmed her. Laura's description of a young, overwhelmed Lauren sitting in the corner were eerie, as that is how Lauren's body was found, pressed into the corner of the basement. Finally, investigators reviewed the family finances. All of their bills were up to date, and financial worries were not among their issues. The family died on firm financial footing. When this story broke in the news, there was a lot of talk about shunning, how Lauren and her family being shunned by the church and their families is what led to her taking such drastic action. While I don't agree with this as being the reason for the tragedy that unfolded, I do think that isolation was a big part of the reason Lauren was so troubled, so damaged that murdering her husband, children, and then herself was viewed as the only way out. Being apart from family and friends meant there were few people available to help. Few people available to see how bad things had become, how troubled Lauren Stewart was in those cold winter days leading up to the murder of her family and herself. Perhaps the loving guidance of a parent or sibling could have helped her see things more clearly, helped Lauren choose another path, one that did not lead to the violent destruction of the entire family. Something else to mention? On Valentine's Day, February 14th, the day before the murders, Stephen Stewart came to the house around lunchtime for a visit, and he came at his mother's request. The family of four chatted and visited, and Stephen left, returning to his own place, but not before his mother asked if he would come again tomorrow on the 15th. It appears that Lauren Stewart used Valentine's Day as a dry run for the murders she would commit before taking her own life. If you are struggling with thoughts of suicide or if you need help, you do not have to go through it alone. The National Suicide Prevention Hotline can be reached at 1-800-273-8255 or contact your local crisis center for assistance. If you are a longtime listener of the show, please note that I have changed my release schedule. You will find new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. You can follow Already Gone on Facebook, on Twitter at AlreadyGonePod, and sometimes I post on Instagram where I am Nina instead, N-I-N-A-I-N-N-S-T-E-D, all one word. If you are looking for additional content or to support the show, please check out Already Gone on Patreon. I'm releasing bonus content there each month. 
And finally, if you haven't listened to Don't Talk to Strangers, my long-form look at the Oakland County child murders, please give that a listen. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe. Thank you.